Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. Happy Friday! This week has seemingly gone on forever. I hope that you are enjoying the week, and I hope your Friday is going well. I am recording this on Thursday, and it is super exciting that Justice Jackson has now been approved to the Supreme Court, which is just a huge step forward in making sure that the court is representative of the population of the United States. She is the first um, black woman to ever serve on the court. She is, I'm pretty sure, the sixth woman to ever serve on the court. Um, So I think it's good that the court is becoming more diverse. It's becoming more representative of the United States population. There was a lot of debate about her record, and I mean, it's always good to look into that. It was pretty party line on the vote, but I think regardless of what your political beliefs are, it's hard to say that having a court that reflects the diversity of the United States is a bad thing. So super exciting that she's now officially a Supreme Court justice. She made it through the process. And now there are back to nine members on the court. Thanks so much for tuning in. I read this interesting article today for scandal updates. I was I was busy this week, so I didn't have a lot of time looking on the news, but this article came out earlier today and it was talking about the Secret Service is under a lot of scrutiny right now. Four agents are suspended, and it's because Two men, quote, allegedly provided rent-free apartments estimated to cost more than $40,000 annually to um, Department of Homeland Security employee and a member of the U.S. Secret Service, all while impersonating federal agents, end quote. Oh, yikes. Don't impersonate a federal agent and also don't rent out rent-free apartments that is coming out of the government budget. (laughs) Why? So that is interesting. It seems like I didn't really know this, that the Secret Service has had a lot of scrutiny in different areas. I don't know much about the Secret Service other than they are employed to protect the president, the president's family, and other uh, top political people, but I might have to do an episode on them sometime soon because that would be super interesting. I think it's timely that that article came out today because while I'm not doing an episode about the Secret Service, I am doing an episode based around a political figure, a political family, and a very memorable scandal that had to do with a pretty important political figure Yeah, there are so many theories and stuff, so we'll talk about a good chunk of them. This, without further ado, this is Chappaquiddick, a Kennedy scandal. And before I dive in, the sources I used, I used two History.com articles, one published in 2010, one published in 2018. I used some old newspapers that I found um, through, like, Google's 
old newspaper database. One is from The Telegraph. I used an article from Forbes by C. O'Donnell. I found a court transcript back from 1970, an article from Vanity Fair by Jay Sanborn, a book titled Death at Chippequiddick by R. Tedrow and T. Tedrow, a Times article from 1969, which was published, like, it was archived online, and then the Wikipedia page about this incident. Those are the sources, so let's dive in. This story, this incident, it primarily takes place on Friday, July 18th, and Saturday, July 19th of 1969. It surrounds a member of a pretty famous family, the Kennedys. And just before we dive in, I love this family because of the crazy history, everything that surrounds them, especially the supposed Kennedy curse. That could be an interesting episode within itself, more of just like a theory than a scandal, but this story involves Edward M. Kennedy, who is more famously known as Ted Kennedy. This story, it takes place in a rich, upscale part of Massachusetts. Let's talk a little bit about Ted before we get to the night of the incident. Ted, at the time of this, he was 37 years old. He was a well-known member of the Kennedy family. His brothers were President John F. Kennedy, who was assassinated in 1963. His brother, Robert F. Kennedy, was assassinated in 1968, two very prominent political figures. And Ted himself was a prominent and upcoming political figure as well. He had started his political career by being sworn into his brother John's old U.S. Senate seat in 1962. So at the time of this incident, he was a U.S. Senator for the state of Massachusetts. Being a U.S. Senator is a big deal, only two per state. Most people know who their Senators are. Being a Kennedy is a big deal. So Ted is just at a crossroads of being well-known and famous in the political realm. Being a Kennedy not only comes with a name recognition, it comes with many privileges, and one of them is money. A Forbes article published in 2014 estimated that the Kennedy's family net worth was... $1 billion, billion with a B. Ted Kennedy himself was said to have a net worth of around $100 million at the time of his death in 2009. I couldn't find an exact number for the family's estimated net worth at the time of this incident, but clearly they were doing fine. They're still doing fine. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're rolling in the dough. The weekend of July 18th and 19th, this was a Friday and Saturday, Ted and his cousin Joseph Gargan, they were planning to race Kennedy's sailboat in the Edgartown Yacht Club Regatta, also known as fancy rich people things to do on the weekend. To go off and to have this fun weekend, Joseph rented the Lawrence Cottage on Chappaquiddick Island. Chappaquiddick Island, it's a small island part of Edgartown, Massachusetts. It's on the eastern end of Martha's Vineyard, and Chappaquiddick Island itself is only accessible by ferry. And it's close enough to where you could, like, swim across, but if you want a car or you don't want to swim, <laughs> it, you can only get there by ferry. On Friday night, July 18th, there was a cookout and party at the cottage. There was a group of people that were invited. It was several friends of Ted, as well as a group of 
secretaries and women uh, women aides who had helped on Robert Kennedy's 1968 presidential campaign. And getting together yearly, it wasn't uncommon for the Kennedys. Ted said that he, quote, encouraged and helped sponsor, end quote, this gathering to help thank the women who had helped on the campaign. Unfortunately, his brother Robert Kennedy was assassinated, so he was never able to see how the campaign went. But Ted was essentially like, hey, these women, they were super helpful. They made the race or they made his campaign successful. I want to throw them a nice weekend. So seemingly nice, wholehearted weekend to thank their work. All of the women in attendance, they were from Washington. And the women in attendance were... Mary Joe, Susan Tannenbaum, Rose, Rosemary Keough, Esther Newberg, and Nancy and Mary Ellen Lyons. The men in attendance were former U.S. Attorney Paul Markham, a Kennedy employee named Jack Crimmins, and two of Ted's sailing friends, Charles Treader and Raymond LaRusso. A group of people not in attendance, which has stuck out to many people at the time of this incident and looking back on it, were any of the wives of the men. Ted said that his wife was not there for, quote, only reasons of health, end quote, and there were no reasons given as to why the other wives of the men in attendance were not there. Just kind of let that nugget sit there for now. The house itself, the cottage that was rented for this fun weekend, it wasn't big enough for all of the people to stay there. I'm pretty sure it only had like two bedrooms, so not enough room for these 12 people to stay there. Because of this, a lot of them had hotel rooms and different arrangements. Ted himself, he had a hotel room at the Shire Town Inn across the channel in Edgar Town. And the women, they had rooms at a motel called The Dunes, which was several miles away. The day of the party, Friday, July 18th, before the party started, it was a pretty normal day. Ted, he wanted to go swimming. It was a nice day, so he was like, cool, let's go swimming. So he got changed and got into a swimming suit and started to head down to the beach. To get to the beach on Chappaquiddick Island, and specifically the beach where they were going to go swim, Ted took a route down the paved school road. He then took a right onto an unpaved road called Dyke Road. It's important to note that Ted usually wasn't driving. Normally, and including this ride to the beach, it was his employee Crimmins that drove. So they're going down this paved road called School Road. They then take a right onto an unpaved road called Dyke Road. They go over the Dyke Bridge to across a pond to get to the beach. Ted went to the beach with a few of the women who were going to be at the party, including Mary Jo. They presumably had fun. Maybe they built a sandcastle. Who knows? Adults building sandcastles. What a wholesome picture. But they had a good time. And after the beach, they were going back. Ted changed. He then went and did the boat racing thing, aka rich people stuff. After this boat racing thing, Ted went to his room at the Shire Town Inn to change. And as a reminder, his room is not on Chappaquiddick Island. It's back in Edgar Town, so he goes back there. He changes. And at this point, while he's in his room, 
Several people come by to talk about the boat race. Ted, he did not win the boat race, but he had a fun time, so they were just chatting about the race, and they started to talk about the race over beer and drinks at his hotel room in the Shire Town Inn. Later that evening, the party started, and depending on whose account you listen to, there are some details that are different, but overall, it seems like the party was definitely a party. There was a lot of livelihood to it. There was a lot going on. The party, it was filled with good food. There was steak. There was liquor, all good things like that. Crimmins, who again was Ted's chauffeur and like Kennedy employee, but was commonly his chauffeur, had bought, quote, at least three half gallons of vodka, four-fifths of scotch, two half gallons of rum, and three cases of beer. This figures out to a quart of liquor plus a six-pack of beer for each of the 12 party members, end quote. A lot of liquor was purchased. When you divide it up, it's still a lot of liquor and alcohol per person. And remember that most of the people weren't planning to stay at this cottage. So it's not like you rent an Airbnb with your friends, you get trashed, and then you just go up to your room and sleep it off and you wake up with a hangover. Most of these people were going to have to either drive or find a ride to their hotel rooms. Not only was this party filled with good alcohol, good food, it was filled with lots and lots of noise. A nearby neighbor who was about 150 yards away, she said that she could hear the party because it was quite loud, and that neighbor's husband was getting ready to call the police around 1.30 because of the disturbance and the noise, so even at 1.30, this party is still going strong. No one knows exactly how much each individual person drank that night, and looking at Ted's history, some people make some assumptions based on his past drinking patterns. Ted, he had some past incidences with alcohol that seemed to show that there was an issue with drinking. For example, there was one time where Ted was coming back on a flight uh, back from Alaska to D.C. after a subcommittee meeting, and he basically drank the entire way back. And I will say... Coming from, so I am in California and I flew to the Midwest back to Iowa for my winter break. No layovers, just pure flight time. That was probably like four or five-ish hours. And that was only halfway across the country. So going from Alaska to DC, I'm sure is a super duper long flight. And he was basically drinking the entire way. When he got back to D.C., he was running up and down the aisles cheering, quote, Eskimo power, end quote, so loud and offensively that his aides could not handle him, according to some reports. There were incidents like these and others uh, that kind of showed that there was potentially drinking issues, but a lot of these reports were buried by the press, so the public didn't really know a lot about them. At least at the time, the public seemingly had no insight as to this maybe alcohol problem that Ted Kennedy had at the time. Also, I just want to make clear, I'm not accusing Ted of having an alcohol problem. This is just coming from reports at the time, and it is speculated that he did. So going back to the night of the incident, this next part of the story is the most mysterious, mainly because there's only one survivor. 
At some point in the evening, Ted Kennedy and Mary Jo left the party and got into Ted's black Oldsmobile. It was reported that Mary had said she wanted to leave the party and Ted was like, okay, you know, I'll accompany you or I'll give you a ride. But right off the bat, this seems strange. It seems strange because Ted Kennedy never really drove himself. His chauffeur, Crimmins, normally drove him so... Why, all of a sudden, is Ted going to drive himself? Just keep that nugget. Ted estimated that the two of them left around 11.15pm, and he didn't have a watch on. He got this time estimate from Crimmins' watch when Crimmins gave him the keys. Not only did Ted not have a watch, but there is some debate from people at the party as to what time the two of them actually left. So to get back to Edgar Town and to the mainland, again, you have to take a ferry, and the last ferry at that time left at midnight unless, unless, whoa, <sighs> the last ferry left at midnight unless another ferry was arranged. Presumably, if they left at 11.15, it would make sense that they were going to try and make this ferry to get the last one at midnight. The other thing that's weird about this whole trip is that Mary Jo not only told absolutely no one that she was leaving, so she was just dipping out with no word, but she also left her purse and her hotel key at the party. Some people think this shows that she was intending to return to grab those things. Some people think it shows that maybe she had too much to drink and she just forgot. There is a lot of debate over what it means that it was left, but I think that debate is warranted because she was staying at a motel several miles away, and assuming they left at 11.15, if they catch the ferry, she's not going to have a way to get into her hotel room if it was forgot on accident. Were they going to come back if it was forgot on purpose? Were they headed to the ferry in the first place if the last one left at midnight? Were they planning on just going out for a short while and then coming back? Who knows? It's up for speculation, but that's another thing that doesn't make a lot of sense. Ted's story of what happened is that they were, so he was driving, but they were going and driving toward where the ferry was. They were driving down this paved road. This is the school road, the one that they had driven down earlier. And they were supposed to turn left, which would have gone down another paved road called Chappaquiddick Road, which would have let have led to the where the ferry was. Instead, he turned right down a dirt road, an unpaved road, Dyke Road, which led to the Dyke Bridge. Making this mistake would have meant that he had to miss a big reflecting arrow sign pointing toward the way of the ferry. It was also said that the Kennedy brothers knew this area well. Further, just earlier that day, he had gone down that exact same road, Dyke Road, to go to the beach to go swimming. However, the caveat is he was not driving at the time, but if the ferry was down a paved road, they would have had to go down that paved road to get to the cottage, and he had gone down the road, the dirt road, to go swimming. So how did this mistake happen? How did he miss 
a large reflective sign with an arrow that said, or at least that pointed to where the ferry was. How did he go down a dirt road versus a paved road in an area that he is supposed to be familiar with? And further, how did he go down this dirt road for over half of a mile, not realizing that he was going down the wrong road? As you go down the dirt road, dike road, to where the bridge is, the way the road is set up is that you have to turn the car to get onto the bridge because if you were to just continue straight with the road, you would go into the water. And at this time, when the accident takes place, there was no barriers, uh, there were no guardrails, There were also no lights down this road. They left at night. It was probably pretty dark. There obviously were the headlights of the car, but there were no street lights. There were no guardrails down this dirt road. So it would be pretty hard to see that you needed to turn onto this bridge on a dirt road with no lights, especially if you're going at a pretty quick pace. So as Ted Kennedy tells it, They left around 11.15. Ted drove down the road. He made this wrong turn. Mary Jo was in the passenger seat, and the car went into the water. The car, it the way Ted described it, he partially drove on the bridge, but then it went into the water, and once the car hit the water, it overturned, so it was laying on its roof, and the tires and the bottom of the car were facing up. Ted said, quote, I remember thinking as the cold water rushed in around my head that I was certain for drowning. Then water entered my lungs and I, uh, and I actually felt the sensation of drowning, but somehow I struggled to the surface alive. I made immediate and repeated efforts to save Mary Jo by diving into the strong and murky current, but succeeded only in increasing my state of utter exhaustion and alarm, end quote. So that's Ted Kennedy's account of what happened, but there's a big problem with what Ted said, specifically the time that Ted said, and that problem is someone named Deputy Sheriff Christopher Huck Look, who goes by Huck. Huck, he was a part-time deputy sheriff, he was working as a gate guard, and he was driving toward his home at the time. He was driving toward his home around 12.40 a.m., When he passed the intersection of Dyke Road, this is the road that led to the bridge, when he saw a dark four-door sedan driven by a man with a woman in the front seat driving slowly and that car passed in front of him. The car, it drove off the pavement, kind of like into a ditch area, and just stopped. So him wanting to be a good officer, a good person, He was like, I'm going to get out of my car and check on these people because maybe they're lost. So he got out of his car and he started walking toward the car. But at that point, the car quickly reversed. It backed up and it sped off down Dyke Road. Huck, he didn't get a great look at the car in terms of a specific brand, but he did say it was a dark colored four-door sedan, and he also said that the license plate began with the letter L and the license plate contained two sevens. Ted Kennedy's license plate was L78-207. Ted Kennedy drove a dark four-door Oldsmobile sedan. 
So if we are to believe Huck's account, which took place at 1240, where did the time go? Ted Kennedy is saying that they left at 1115, so presumably they would have gone into the water not long after 1115, but Huck is saying, I saw two people in a similar car and I got, you know, two major details of the people in the car, the car itself, and the license plate correct, and I saw them at around 12.40 a.m. over an hour after Ted Kennedy is saying that the car went into the water. So where did the hour go? Many people believe that the hour was filled with Ted and Mary having sexual relations, but Ted has always denied that, and friends and family of Mary Jo said that that was not like her, she wouldn't have done that, and there is no evidence of that happening, but the big question remains is, what happened in the hour if we're to believe Huck's story? And then the other side is, why would Huck lie? There's no benefit for him. There's no gain to be had. It seems like the person who would have the motivation to lie would be Ted. The crash, it happened in 1969, so obviously there were no cell phones, no way to get a hold of someone, so Ted had to start walking back toward where people would be. It's dark, it's nighttime, but before he started to go back, he rested on the bank for about 15 minutes. He said later that he did this because he was exhausted from jumping in the water, trying to rescue Mary. That is believable in some sense, but in my mind, if you just had this horrific car accident, you are tired, but you're not hurt. You know, he his leg wasn't broken, his ankle wasn't broken. He was able to walk, he was just tired. I would think that no matter how tired I was, I would just start walking, you know, maybe not running at first, but I would start booking it down that road. But he said he was tired, so he sat for about 15 to 20 minutes, and then he started walking back. It was about a 15 minute walk back to the cottage, and Ted said that he didn't see any houses on the way back to the cottage. And that's weird because he had to have passed four houses right along the road that he could have stopped at. And that's not debated. There are four houses on that road that he would have passed. One of those homeowners said that she left a, night, a light on that night, that she was home, and that she had a phone. So how could he have not seen this? Presuming that this is a dark road with no street lights. How would he have not seen a house with a light on? And if he's so urgently trying to get help, why wouldn't he go to the house? So instead of stopping at any of these four houses, which he later maintained he didn't see, but one homeowner said the light was definitely on, he walks all the way back to the cottage. The party, it's still going on, and instead of running into the party and being like, guys, there's this horrible thing that happened, he doesn't go in the party. Instead, he quietly gets his cousin Joseph and Paul Markham, and again, Paul is a friend who was formerly the U.S. attorney for Massachusetts. He gets their attention, and he sits in a car outside. 
he is like, hey guys, this horrible thing just happened. So the three of them go back to the site where Joseph and Paul, they jump in, they try to rescue Mary Jo, but because of the strong current, it just wasn't possible for them. They then stopped their rescue attempts and they talked about what they should do. They were discussing this while standing next to a phone booth. Let me say that again. The three men talked about what they should do after trying to rescue Mary while standing next to a phone booth. Okay, hopefully that sank in. All three of these men were lawyers. One thing, I just want to point that out because as someone who is becoming a lawyer, it's becoming more and more in my everyday life where I see there's potential liability, there's potential liability, that could be a lawsuit. And, you know, not that that's my thought with everything, but in a situation like this, as a lawyer, I can imagine it would almost be impossible to not think about liability. Not to give lawyers a bad rap by any means, because there are so many lawyers that do so many great things, but it's hard as someone who's becoming a lawyer to just have a situation and not think about a potential lawsuit that could come out of it. Okay, so they were discussing all of this next to the phone booth when suddenly Ted jumped into the water and swam across the way around 500 feet and returned to his hotel room. So he was just like, peace out, jumps in this cold water with a strong current, swims across to the mainland and goes back to his hotel room. What? <laughs> What's that about? Ted gets back to his hotel room, he puts on dry clothes, he then left his room and asked someone for the time, which at this point, it was about 2.30 a.m. The other two men, they were like, uh, okay. They went back to the cottage around 2 a.m., but they didn't tell anybody what was going on. At 7.30 the next morning, and at this point, the police have not been called, Ted was seen talking casually to the winner of the sailing race that took place the previous day, and he seemed normal, he didn't seem like anything was amiss, he didn't seem like someone who had just been in a horrific car accident, and someone was dead, presumably. He also seemingly didn't look concerned or worried about the fact that maybe I should call the police. At 8 a.m. that morning, Joseph and Paul crossed on the ferry to meet with Ted. That same morning, shortly after 8 a.m., a man and a 15-year-old were fishing off of or around the area when they saw the car, and the police were finally called around 8.20 a.m. Not Paul, not Joseph, not Ted who called the police. It was these two fishermen who found the car that called the police. One thing that's interesting is that looking at the duty to rescue and help someone, there's generally not a duty to help people. And one thing we learned about in criminal law and tort is like, for example, let's say you're at a beach and you look out and you see someone drowning. You're not related to them. You don't know them. You didn't push them in the water. You didn't cause their harm at all. You see someone drowning and you watch them, you look, you don't call for help, and they drown and die. In most jurisdictions, you will not be held liable for anything because you did not have a special relationship with that person, you did not cause their harm, 
There are some jurisdictions where there are Good Samaritan statutes that would require you to call for help, but generally there is no duty to help someone that you did not cause the harm and that you do not have a special relationship with. So with these lawyers, even though there's a moral duty that, yeah, they should have called the police, legally they really did not have a duty to get help and... Ted arguably had a huge duty to get help. He's the one who caused a car accident. But just an interesting thing to note that you may be screaming to yourself, why didn't the lawyers call for help? And that's why, that generally there's no duty to help people. And a reason for that is looking on the extreme opposite side. Let's say there's a car accident on the interstate during rush hour and you see a car go off into the ditch and it starts on fire. There are presumably going to be hundreds of people that drive by that don't call for help even though they see the car on fire and potentially someone is hurt. Do we then round up those hundreds of people and hold them liable for the harm that that person caused? Do we punish them for not calling? That seems like too much. That's not feasible. It's not realistic. And also, is it really fair to put that burden on every single person in that situation? Obviously, that's an extreme. And the other extreme is you see someone drowning, you don't do anything, you don't call for help. Where's the middle ground? Who knows? But generally, you don't have a duty to help. Okay, so going back to... When the police were called, they came, they were like, we need a scuba diver. So John Farrar, he was the captain of the Edgartown Fire Rescue Unit. He was called, he arrived at 845, and when he dove down, he discovered Mary Jo's body in the back seat of the car, not the front seat. Farrar said that he discovered an air pocket in the car, and the way that Mary Jo's body was situated in the car, he believed that she found an air bag, an air bubble, not an airbag. She, he believed that she found an air bubble in the back of the car, and tried to keep herself back there for air. The medical examiner, when her body was examined, determined that Mary Jo's cause of death was drowning. But Farrar, he believes that she suffocated. There was an investigator for the Massachusetts Registry of Motor Vehicles um, that did an investigation, found that parts of the roof and the trunk appeared to be dry, giving some more credibility to the fact that there was likely an air bubble in the back of the car that Mary Jo might have found, and that she potentially survived the impact and either suffocated because the oxygen ran out ran out in the air bubble or she drowned. Officially, her cause of death was ruled as drowning, but Farrar the diver is like, nope, I believe she suffocated. Meanwhile, while the police are, you know, doing this whole thing, they're investigating, recovering the body, Ted and his friends start making phone calls. None of them were to the police. After Ted hears that Mary Jo's body has been found, he then went to the police station around 9.50 a.m. that morning. He gave a statement, which the, an officer typed out, and the statement said the following, quote, On July 18, 1969, at approximately 11.15 p.m. in Chappaquiddick, Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, I was driving my car on Main Street on my way to get to the ferry back to Edgartown. 
I was unfamiliar with the road and turned right on Dyke Road instead of bearing hard left on Main Street. After proceeding for approximately one half mile on Dyke Road, I descended a hill and came upon a narrow bridge. The car went off the side of the bridge. There was one passenger with me, one Miss Mary, a former secretary of my brother, Senator Robert Kennedy. The car turned over and sank into the water and landed with the roof resting on the bottom. I attempted to open the door and the window of the car, but have no recollection of how I got out of the car. I came to the surface and then repeatedly dove down to the car in an attempt to see if the passenger was still in the car. I was unsuccessful in the attempt. I was exhausted and in a state of shock. I recall walking back to where my friends were eating. There was a car parked in front of the cottage and I climbed into the back seat. I then asked for someone to bring me back to Edgartown. I remember walking around for a period and then going back to my hotel room. When I fully realized what had happened this morning, I immediately contacted the police. End quote. When the officer asked him if the statement was correct, he said, yep, that's correct, but he never signed it. An autopsy of the body was deemed not necessary by the district attorney's office, but a sample of blood was taken for alcohol content analysis, and upon uh, analyzing it, Mary Jo's blood was determined to be at a blood alcohol concentration of 0.09%, which may not seem high, the modern standard is 0.08% to be legally impaired, but in some articles, it said that for a person of her weight and stature, it would be equivalent to, quote, five drinks of liquor within an hour prior to death, end quote. It was also suggested that had a quicker rescue been done, she may have been rescued and survived, primarily because of the strong evidence of the air pocket in the car. So a lot of people think that had Ted Kennedy had... Uh, Joseph had Paul called the police, called the fire department. It is possible that Mary could still be alive today. I guess maybe not today because she'd probably be pretty old, but she could have lived a, a full life. When Ted was in the police station, there was an officer there who was trying to ask him questions. And the officer said that, quote, it wasn't like a normal person who had just been in a fatal accident. It was almost like he was an actor and he had a script to go by, end quote. The officer at one point smelled alcohol coming from Ted, so the officer asked him if he had been drinking that morning, and Ted responded with, quote, I've already told you there would be no more questions, end quote. A week after the accident, Ted pleaded guilty to leaving the scene of an accident. He was sentenced to a two-month suspended jail sentence. The judge suspended his sentence and said that Ted, quote, has already been and will continue to be punished far beyond anything this court can impose, end quote. Basically, because he was a rich white male politician, well-connected, he got off with no punishment. Love that. Not saying that Ted Kennedy is a murderer, not saying that Ted Kennedy deserved to go to prison for life, but because he was a white male, well-connected and rich, he got off with no punishment when his actions led to the death of another. Further, in this court hearing, Ted was characterized as someone with a perfect record, but this was far from the truth. 
A story was published that morning that talked about Ted's record of reckless driving, driving without a license, and at one time, he even raced to avoid a highway patrol officer leading in a high-speed chase. So not that he had this horrible criminal background, but he was someone who did not have a great driving record. So the fact that he was characterized as someone with absolutely no record, squeaky clean, is incorrect and false and was known to the public at the time that this court hearing went on, but yet it seemingly had no impact. Kennedy, uh, Ted Kennedy, he made a televised speech about the incident on July 25th, so just about a week after it took place. He started with a prepared script, but at some points went off script saying that he involved Joseph and Paul in trying to rescue Mary Jo. He basically explained what his what, what happened from his perspective and said that his failure to notify the police immediately was, quote, indefensible, end quote. He also said the following, quote, If at, at any time the citizens of Massachusetts should lack confidence in their senator's character or his ability— with or without justification, he could not, in my opinion, adequately perform his duties and should not continue in office. The opportunity to work with you and serve Massachusetts has made my life worthwhile. So I ask you tonight, the people of Massachusetts, to think this through with me. In facing this decision, I seek your advice and opinion. In making it, I seek your prayers. For this is a, de for this is a decision that I will have to finally make on my own. End quote. So basically, he was like, if you don't think I'm fit to continue to be your senator, vote me out of office. And from this speech, his account of what happened, it was almost entirely negative reviews, negative reactions. The Cleveland Press said, quote, the public is entitled to a better explanation than it has had yet, end quote. The New York Times said, quote, his emotion-charged address leaves us less than satisfied with his partial explanations for a gross failure of responsibility and more than ever convinced that the concerned town, county, and state officials of Massachusetts have also failed in their duty thoroughly to investigate this case because of the political personality involved, end quote. It kind of seems like his speech would be the end of it, but it wasn't. There was a secret inquest done in January of 1970, which I found the original transcript to. Super exciting stuff for people who like historical documents. It's in the show notes if you want to go read it. Ted, in this, he testified. He was adamant about sticking to the timeline, he said. He testified that they left around 11.15. He testified that he saw no other cars that night, essentially thus negating what Officer Huck had said. He said that he saw no houses with lights on on the way back to the cottage. He said he saw no distinguishable shapes. And he said that when he got back to the cottage, he didn't go inside, but instead he let his two friends know what happened. He also testified that he didn't realize he was on the wrong road. Just remember that this was a dirt road instead of a paved road. He said that he had had nothing to drink after 9 p.m. He said that he was not under the influence of alcohol at the time of the crash. It's interesting that he says that because there is absolutely no way to tell. By the time Ted, by the time the crash was discovered and the time the body was recovered and by the time Ted Kennedy actually went into the police station, it was about 10 a.m. the next morning. So depending on whose timeline we believe, 
If we believe Ted Kennedy's timeline, that is a period of almost 12 hours for his blood to dissipate and to basically get rid of the alcohol content. And if we believe Huck's timeline where he saw this car, presumably Ted Kennedy, around 1240, 1245, that's still about 9 to 10 hours for his blood alcohol concentration to dissipate. And people who believe that this was kind of a cover-up believe that the reason why the police weren't called is because Ted Kennedy was under the influence of alcohol that night and realizing that he had killed someone, didn't want to get the police involved, and only went to the police when it was presumably safe for if his blood got tested, that it would show that there was no alcohol. But even if his blood was tested, it wouldn't have been reliable because it had been 10 hours since the crash. The result of this inquest was a finding of probable cause that Ted negligently operated his vehicle, which contributed to Mary Jo's death, but no charges were pressed. There was a grand jury which convened several months later, but it was not able to view evidence from the inquest. An autopsy on Mary Jo's body was never done. There was a petition to exhume Mary Jo's body for an autopsy, but it was denied because, quote, there was no evidence that anything other than drowning had caused the death of Mary Jo, end quote. And we had talked about Farrar believing that Mary Jo found the air bubble at the inquest. He testified that, quote, It looked as if she were holding herself up as to get a last breath of air. It was, conscious, it was a consciously assumed position. She didn't drown. She died of suffocation in her own air void. It took her at least three or four hours to die. I could have had her out of that car 25 minutes after I got the call, but he didn't call, end quote. While there were no charges that were pressed, Mary Jo's family received almost $150,000 from Ted Kennedy and the Kennedy's insurance. And the last kind of punishment that Ted Kennedy received was Ted's license was put, was suspended. His driver's license was suspended for one year. So in terms of criminal punishment, civil liability, there really wasn't any but Ted did face a lot of hardships in his political career, and I guess by hardships I mean that he really lost any chance at becoming president. He eventually ran for president when he challenged Jimmy Carter for the Democratic nomination in 1979, but he lost that. Despite him losing that, he remained a U.S. senator for the rest of his life until his death in 2009. So even though Ted Kennedy presumably lost his chance of holding the highest office in the United States, he still served as a United States senator after this for almost 40 years. What I want to end this story on is talking a little bit about Mary Jo, because regardless of what you believe, she did die a tragic death and is often a forgotten part of this story. Mary Jo, she attended Caldwell College. She was described as smart, intelligent, and motivated. Quote, she was quiet, self-effacing, never bragged. End quote. She was a big supporter of the civil rights movement. She taught at an all-black school, an all-black high school in Montgomery, Alabama, and all around just seemed like a good person. People who knew Mary Jo, they said that they don't like the categorization that there was sexual relations going on with Ted Kennedy and her. They said that she wouldn't have done that because Ted Kennedy was married and it portrayed her in, quote, a very negative light. And then lastly, she was, to many, quote, 
intelligent and thoughtful. She was a tragic loss, end quote. And with that, that concludes Chappaquiddick, a Kennedy scandal. This story is so interesting to me because it, first of all, it's tragic. Someone died. Second of all, it involves one of the most famous political dynasties in the United States and potentially a political cover-up. There are so many theories out there that it was a cover-up, that Ted suffered a psychological break, and so that's why he behaved the way he did after the crash. But despite the many theories that are out there, we will never officially know what happened that night other than what is the widely accepted official story. Alrighty, so now this is a personal scandal. This is a family scandal that someone sent in. This one, <laughs> this, okay. This one says, my grandfather died in 2008. I had to find out via my junk mail filter and they gave me three days to mourn, etc. I never had a problem with the guy as long as he lived, as long as I knew him, maybe a grouch here and there. So I called the funeral home and the guy said I wasn't allowed to attend the service on order of my father's side of the family. I didn't know them at all and couldn't point them out in a lineup. So I pressed and the guy was being really, really vague. At this point, I'm really pissed off and couldn't even go to the funeral or anything. I called the only aunt that I sort of knew and she never, call, and she never called back. A few days passed and my brother-in-law called me to come over. My sisters were there and they suddenly announced that he was some kind of pedo. The thing is, he never touched me or my son where, when we visited and nobody else had said anything happened. I had one niece that Blue Town changed her name and I never heard from her again. It's nuts. I don't even know where he's buried. Ugh, gosh. That's horrible because one, pedophile, horrible, but also it's horrible to have this idea of someone and then to have that idea completely shattered after they die because, for whatever reason, but in this case because they were a gross human being. And obviously it's you know, great that he, you, or your son were not a victim of his pedophilia, but that doesn't change the fact that he was a pedophile. So it's unfortunate that you had to deal with that and you went through that uh, potentially traumatic situation of not being able to attend his funeral, but it kind of seems like the family wanted to be a little hush-hush. Ugh, just gross. But thank you for sending that in. That's all I've got. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to post photos related to this episode on Instagram at Scandal101Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal101Pod, on Facebook, search Scandal101Podcast. You'll find us there. The website is Scandal101Podcast.podbean.com. You can find the show notes there. You can also find them linked in the episode description. And then if you want your personal scandal read on the podcast, please send that to Scandal101Podcast at gmail.com. Again, thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Political dynasties are fascinating. There are so many scandals that have to do with politics, and this is just one of them. See you next week. This has been episode 47 of Scandal 101.